Annenberg Media. This is the Annenberg Learner Podcast, where we aim to elevate the education profession through conversations that inspire, recognize, and encourage innovation and best practices in the field. We track the lived experience of teachers, students, and parents alongside the ecosystem that serves them. Guest speakers will share what's working and the steps we can take to reimagine and redesign teaching and learning for our most vulnerable populations. Welcome back to the Annenberg Learner Podcast. Today, we have a special episode, an excerpt from Annenberg Learner Series, Neuroscience and the Classroom, Making Connections, a video course designed to familiarize K-12 educators with current neuroscience research that could be used in the classroom. The following episode highlights exciting developments in the field of neuroscience, leading to new understandings of how the brain works and provides insights into brain function that can be harnessed by teachers for use in their own classrooms to address their own particular challenges. Annenberg Learner houses educational video programs with coordinated online and print materials, intended for students in the classroom and professional development for K-12 educators that exemplify excellent teaching. Go to learner.org to explore the entire Annenberg Learner catalog. I'm an associate professor of pediatrics at NYU School of Medicine, and I direct a center called the Yellen Center for Mind, Brain, and Education. Mind, Brain, and Education, MBE, integrates the work of clinicians, neuroscientists, and educators. What we were hoping for is uh, creating language, uh, vocabulary, shared conversations where we can help each other move forward in, in helping children. We're understanding through research about brain development that this is, there's a wide range of normal variation in different children's brains, that uh, there's something called neuroplasticity, which means people's brains are changing all the time. Uh, even over the course of a classroom lesson, it seems, uh, we're making new brain cells. Uh, that therefore, uh, how, people, uh, how people's brains work uh, and how different brains work differently affects how people learn. We make educators feel inadequate um, if kids aren't getting good grades or kids are not passing all the end-of-year examinations. Uh, instead of really looking at what the statistics show, which we know that something like um, nationally 38% of high school graduates are reading at a 12th grade level, that uh, as much as 20% of normal children are going to have difficulty learning no matter how you teach them. And so that I think helping teachers understand uh, that when children are not, are not successful, it doesn't mean that they're doing a bad job uh, and, and that there's information out there uh, that can help them understand the children in the classroom and help them really uh, be more successful. The common question that we do get is, um, is this the latest fad? Uh, you know, last year it was whole language and now this year it's brains. <laughs> well, I, I guess the argument that we would have to make is that uh, it's hard to imagine brains not being part of education in the future. And, um, you know, as I speak to young educators, uh, what I hear from them is that they, they're hungry for understanding about how learning happens and that a lot of their education is really focused on sort of curriculum and you know, the details of, of math and how it's taught. Uh, but, but understanding how children learn 
is something that, that is going to empower them, and that isn't just a, a new fad. Many educators feel they are unequal partners in a vertical collaboration. MBE is a horizontal collaboration of equal partners. There is a natural perception when a clinician or a scientist walks in the room that there's this, that there's this hierarchy um, or that the expert or the academician is telling me how to do my job. And I think that, that we need to move, move past that. I think the notion of mind-branded education is to be equal partners. The important issues that affect how children learn don't live in any one discipline. Uh, and that traditionally, uh, we've all been out here alone uh, as pediatricians, or as educators, or as mental health professionals, or as researchers. And mind, brain, and education addresses or attempts to address the fact that, that really there, there needs to be a conversation across disciplines. And that as that conversation happens, first of all, we all have a lot to learn from each other. And more importantly, we can all be more effective in how we do our jobs. You can subscribe to the Annenberg Learner Podcast on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts. In Atherton, California, teachers from Sacred Heart Preparatory and neighboring schools attended a presentation by Dr. Mary Helen Imordino Yang about the connection between emotion and cognition and how it affects education. In fact, I don't even like to think of emotion and cognition as separate things. They're really, there's thinking, okay? And thinking has an emotional aspect and it has a cognitive aspect. And you can analyze one aspect or the other and kind of ignore one for now. But real thinking is never divorced from emotion. It's always got the two things together. Mary Helen invited the teachers to participate in a dialogue about the relevance of research on emotion and cognition to teaching practices. Yes. So students, adolescents, they're very emotional when it comes to everything. Do you think that's a hindrance or a help when it comes to us trying to yeah, teach them using their emotions? Is that a help or a hindrance? How could you make emotions a help? They need to be encouraged to be able to marshal their mind into an emotional space that's relevant to the current context. That's where the best emotional thinking happens. And so the fact that they have strong emotions is helpful because once you get there, they can get so enthusiastic or so engaged and so uh, connected to the material if, if that's facilitated for them, if they get into it. But if they don't, they can be, by the same token, extraordinarily distracted, extraordinarily frustrated, and extraordinarily unwilling to mentally move into that space. It's a double-edged sword. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword. After the talk, Teachers met in small groups to discuss specific challenges within the classroom. Are you saying that the emotions that we see adolescents going through about the zits on their face, etc., that, that we consider irrelevant, yeah. aren't necessarily irrelevant? Oh no, they're not. I Mary Helen suggested possible solutions based on the neurological link between emotion and learning. One of the things we all face on a daily, weekly basis is the emphasis on the high-stakes testing. Oh, yeah. And we have to teach to the test with the pacing guide, etc., etc., sometimes not in a way that right. facilitates learning for our students right. or right. creates joy in our lives. Right. And there's also a horrendous amount of tension, both from the t 
students and the teachers as this comes up. Mm -hmm. And you give us some suggestions to find positive ways of, to deal with this? Because we can't, yeah. can't ignore it. No, you cannot. Um, it's a big problem. So at the highest level, which isn't the immediate answer, but we have to think about ways to make tests better. Um, but that's not the answer you're looking for. You need to know what to do. And so um, here's what I would suggest. It's kind of mutiny from the bottom up, you know, so to speak. Just let's just let's just color it from a little bit at a time. And that is that um, we should think about the tests as testing not what a kid knows in general, but what a kid knows in a particular context. And so we need to understand tests not as obstacles, but as giving us information about one aspect of children's learning. And that is, what can they do with this kind of material in a testing situation? But then how do you teach so that you can actually have the kids do well on the test? Because you need to, otherwise you're accountable, right? I still think that if you do something where you're actually, it might take longer at the beginning up front, but rather than telling them it, let them learn it. Let them discover it. Let them extract it from a cleverly orchestrated context that allows them to discover it themselves or to measure it themselves. Then once you've got that, you can use that and extract out from that the sort of concrete, discrete things that they're going to need for a test later. The bottom line is you have to have faith in yourself and in your students that if they understand the material deeply, they'll be able to transfer that knowledge into a testing tasting, test taking situation. And then you also have to save a little bit of time to actually let them practice doing that because transferring the knowledge into the test taking situation is a piece of test taking skill then that's where you need to actually practice taking a test because otherwise if you've not seen one before then you're figuring out not just your knowledge but how to take a test at the same time. Yeah. I know that in our Western culture the emotions tend to get a philosophically a pretty low-grade status. Absolutely. And the goal of the philosophical meditation is, is to become more rational. That's right, which when, means take away your emotion. Right. And so I'm just, this is more of a comment, but it's fascinating that what we're suggesting is, is somewhat the opposite. That's that we need to bring thought to bear on emotion and to feel the right things at the right time. Exactly. And so the goal is maybe to get them more emotional in, in proper ways. More personally connected to the meaning of it. Exactly. So it's not an accident that the first book on the neurobiology of emotion by Antonio Damasio, who's one of my mentors, was called Descartes' Error. Exactly for that reason. And now, just to add a little more evidence to what you noticed, exactly right, I mean, we now have very good evidence from patients with brain damage, just happen to have brain damage, in regions of the brain that are involved in um, basically feeling the physiology of an emotion and connecting that to your high-level thinking and planning into the future. And what happens to these people is that they are still very smart, but they make terrible decisions and they become psychopathic. They're actually amoral people um, who can't live on their own. And it's not only that their decision-making is, their decision-making is supremely rational. They weigh the consequences in various, and the risks in a kind of a rational way, and then they pick the one that's best. But they're insensitive to the kind of emotional implications of particular choices that the rest of us are very sensitive to. They don't get that kind of queasiness saying, this might be, a you know, it, this has got very high stakes and it could lead to very good outcomes, so you might want to pick it, but you might also want to consider the bad thing that could happen. And what happens is they end up burning themselves out in all ways, not just 
in emotional and social ways, but in, uh, in, uh, in terms of rational decisions, they make bad business decisions, they lose all their money, they gamble, they cheat on their wives, they do all these kinds of things that ruin their lives because they are insensitive to the long-term emotional implications of a bad decision now. And that just teaches, you, teaches us about the role of sort of praise and punishment and social acceptance and social evaluation and group membership and culture in, more, in the development of moral and social thinking. Um, which is absolutely emotional as well as cognitive. And rationality, divorced from emotion, is very bad for us. It, it ruins our lives in all sorts of ways. Exactly, the, 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 the original uh, Kantian philosophers had it wrong in that sense. I teach in the middle school, and the one thing that is pervasive with middle school are emotions. And I teach science, and, and in the eighth grade it's chemistry. And right now, it's so frustrating because they don't understand. Mm -hmm. And to try and get these points across to them, sometimes it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. So try and break it down into like very simple terms. Mm -hmm. But then you have these kids who their frustration actually shuts them off. Mm -hmm. How do you get them, without doing the one-on-one -on -one touchy-feely, you know, I just unfortunately don't have time in a day to really get into that with mm -hmm. them. How do, you get, how do you get around that? How do you start, mm -hmm. because I can understand, I can go through the empathy process with them, I totally understand their mm -hmm. frustration. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's almost like, how do we get them past that? What do we have to do in order yeah, to make them move through great, that? That's a great question. So, so what you're basically describing is the emotion of frustration. The, the cognitive aspects of the emotion of frustration are to shut down alternative avenues of thought, right? Um, you just kind of want to end and get out of there. That's, that's, that is the cognitive aspect of that emotion. So it's a piece of the frustration emotion that you're seeing. But in order to get around that, what you need to do, and I can't tell you how to do this, you know your kids, you know your curriculum, but what you need to do, I think, is find a way that you can design an experience for those kids, a context for those kids to learn something where they are engaging it from the bottom up and they discover what it is you need them to know. Um, rather than you telling them from the top, which is leading to them, them to frustration because they're coming from such a different place that they can't get to where you're coming from and then they're missing you and then because they're adolescents and they, they don't regulate their emotion well and reflect on it, especially in that moment, then they, the piece of the emotion that's cognitive, which is the shutting off, starts to happen and then you're really done. But if you can find a way to engage them from the bottom up so that they, so that they actually are facilitated unbeknownst to them if they engage with this experiment in such in, a, in the way that it's meant and they're really thinking about it, they can't help but to discover what it is you wanted them to understand anyway. Uh, it can help hugely to get them around it. And then you can come back and teach it the other way too, but now they've got something to hook it to. Um, and that can help a lot. Mm -hmm. yeah. One, two, let's try it, go. After taking a workshop on neuroscience and education, music teacher Hallie Cohen recognized that she needed to find a way to make playing instruments more emotionally relevant for her students. She also understood that learning does not happen in a vacuum, but in a social context. The thing that's really important is building a community of learners. And it was reinforced that kids really will learn more from each other in some ways than actually from the instructor and said, okay, how do I use this? Alyssa, work with Shahzad. Phoebe, you're gonna work with Nathan. 
Hallie began providing lots of opportunities for her students to make music socially. She created structured time for peer mentoring, where older students help teach her younger students. One, two, ready, go. A, lift, A, 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 lift. You're playing like one extra note, so it's just give me a break today, yo, I need a break. So play. Mentoring helps the students become emotionally engaged. The older mentors get validation and appreciation for their work, and the younger students, since they look up to the older ones, become more focused. They're more confident. They got this support by more experienced players, and it's always been my experience that when there is an older peer mentor working with younger students, that they get it a lot faster than if I was just like, you know, hounding them. This is what you need to do. Da, da, da. So for some reason, even if the peer mentor is doing the same thing that I would do, they get it a lot quicker in that situation. The last note, the um, E, it's fortissimo. So we're rushing it a little bit though. You know the train track thing? That means you stop all sound and then do it again. So it's... Kids like to know that they're going to be heard and that what they are saying is important and valuable. That is fundamental to all this. Neuroscience in the Classroom Making Connections was designed for K-12 teachers, other educators, researchers, and adult learners who want to learn more about current issues in education. Go to learner.org to view the entire series. Piaget's classic conservation experiment illustrates how young pre-operational learners can't distinguish the same amount of liquid put in two differently sized containers. So if it's taller, and that's what they're focusing on, then they say the taller one is more. If it's more flat out, wide, you know, looks like a big pancake, and that looks like more, then they'll say the low one is more. So whatever they happen to focus on is what they choose as more. But as learners experience and engage with the world, they reach a certain developmental moment when they start to recognize the amounts of liquid as equivalent. These moments when learners make large leaps in understanding is what interests Dr. Kurt Fisher, the director of the Mind, Brain and Education program at Harvard University. We could see these times when a child was creating new, new knowledge, a new way of thinking. So, for example, a child would say, oh, there's more in the tall one. And then he would say, oh, wait a minute, huh, boy, that's hard, I got to think about that. Um, uh, I think maybe they're the same, uh, but I'm not sure. <laughs> okay, so you see the child is getting an insight and starting to work on it, but they still have to, have to get it consolidated. But that's the beginning of a new way of thinking about amount. Dr. Fisher has been studying the emergence of new skills, or jumps in learning, with a combination of re-examining 100 years of cognitive developmental research, his own novel interview research, 
and EEG studies. He found rapid jumps in performance at certain ages when students were performing under optimal conditions. We got the idea that, well, we can look for rapid changes in kind of thinking. So we, we then went through a bunch of data and we created some new studies where we would actually look for the sudden surge in a new kind of thinking. And we found that we could actually measure that numerically. Researching thousands of students in numerous subjects led Kurt to develop dynamic skill theory. One of the key components of this model is universal developmental levels. This scale, which starts at three to six months and goes well into adulthood, can be used to measure where students' thinking lies developmentally on almost any concept. We've collected a bunch of evidence now to, that shows that the same scale works in every domain we've looked at. We have documented that in many different ways. One of the most important ones is to look for times of reorganization of knowledge. Evidence that people are uh, reorganizing their minds, are thinking in a different way, are building a new kind of knowledge. And those times of reconstruction co-occur at common ages and at common points in learning sequences. The scale starts in infancy with motor actions, then builds to more complex representations, and finally to advanced abstractions. Infants are focusing on actions and perceptions and how they work together. We call that sensory motor action. So how do I look at something? How do I grasp something? Those actions then get put together to create what we call representations. Toddlers can create a representation of a mother, a representation of a self, a representation of a ball, and they build that representation out of their action systems. Once they've got representations, they create more and more complicated representations, moving from single representations to connections between representations, to complicated connections between representations, and then that leads them to build another new entity for understanding, which we call an abstraction. So they move from understanding the president, for example, as the boss of everybody, which is a concrete representation, to understanding the president as a role in the government. The president is the chief executive. Uh, that's an abstraction. Each level is a reorganization of what's gone on before, moving on to a more sophisticated kind of thinking and problem solving than we were able to do earlier. In these cognitive developmental jumps, Kurt came up with a remarkable surprise. He discovered a close connection between the growth cycles in his scale and EEG results that were measuring neural activity in the cortex of the brain. So as a child is developing in infancy and childhood on into adolescence, for each of the levels that we see in skill, there's a growth pattern in the brain that we see where the growth of networks moves around the brain systematically. The most extensive evidence involves EEG, or the electroencephalogram, electrical waves in the brain. We see correlations between waveforms in different brain regions 
that show that there's a surge in connections. It seems to start with the growth being maximal for front to back, and then it moves over into the right hemisphere, then more into the left hemisphere, and then starts over again. So that cycle of brain growth correlates with cognitive growth, with the emergence of a new level in the child's or adolescent's development. This is one of the places that neuroscience and education come together just beautifully. Neuroscience has shown us that in order to reshape the brain, uh, experience can reshape the brain, but it only does it when we're actively doing things. In a world in which we're manipulating objects in a certain way, that changes the way our brain works. Neuroscience has shown us that this active experience will reshape the brain. Passive experience, where an animal is just exposed to something, does not reshape the brain. The brain is only reshaped when we actively work on the objects that we're experiencing anew. Students frequently memorize what they need to learn and don't really understand it. You know, one of my friends has a daughter who went off to college and called him crying uh, after her first physics exam, saying, Dad, I don't understand physics. And his response was, but what do you mean? You got an A in high school physics. He said, but I didn't understand it. I still don't understand it. How do these things relate to each other? What, you know, how do I do an explanation in physics? And that's, uh, so a whole lot of times people memorize in order to, uh, to get by, and they have a little bit of an understanding here and a little bit of an understanding there, but they don't really get how it all works together. So in a classroom, we as teachers are constantly trying to help our students to figure out where they need to go in their own learning. So the windows? One of the major roles for a teacher is to help students to figure out how to direct their own learning. So for each level that a child goes through, they need to be engaged in mastering particular skills, particular tasks, in particular contexts, and actively manipulating concepts the representations, the abstractions, in order to, to reorganize their own mind, to reorganize their own brain, so that they can move to a higher level of understanding. As part of its mission to advance excellent teaching in American schools, Annenberg Learner funds and distributes educational video programs with coordinated online and print materials for the professional development of K-12 teachers. Many programs are also intended for students in the classroom and viewers at home with videos that exemplify excellent teaching. K-12 educators, students, and lifelong learners may access Annenberg Learner resources for free at learner.org. Please note, rights restrictions may limit the availability of some series. For the latest information about learner programming and availability, sign up for the Annenberg Learner Newsletter at learner.org. My name is Gary Scott. I'm at the Rosier School of Education at the University of Southern California. My research is on the emotional connections that I think have to be developed to math and science content knowledge in order to sustain interest and the joy of learning in mathematics and science. And I think it's time that we make a strong case from the neuroscience perspective how important that is to students' persistence and enjoyment in 
learning mathematics and science. So do I have to pay more money here it, with this representation or this representation? They're the same, actually. Why? I immediately tried to come into classrooms and work with kids at a very early age to find out ways that we could um, provide evidence that we think that that's the case and creative ways that they could implement what we think are the kinds of approaches that will actually foster that emotional connection. And we also are going to try to um, measure that using some neuroscience methods to establish a case of a difference in the brain functioning as a result of tapping into kids' um, inherent creativity. Neuroscience is going to provide us hard scientific evidence that many of us have suspected and only just hope we were right about it. Without that kind of hard scientific evidence, a lot of education becomes he said, she said, and trends and fads and whatnot. But when we have hard evidence from the world of neuroscience about how learning occurs and what affects learning, we can be very confident in the kinds of approaches that foster those deep neural connections that we have long suspected to be the case. My name is Linnell Harvey. We're at 93rd Street School in South Central Los Angeles. I really believe in trying to help the kids to be thinkers. Why are you choosing answers you're choosing? Why are you choosing strategies that you're choosing? Not thinking about the right or the wrong answer, but thinking about why and what leads me to that answer. So someone who thinks he thinks it's wrong, what is your evidence? Because he, he let Kunta Kente free because he knew that um, that um, slavery was bad and he should have freedom. So, okay. Anybody so else agree him? with that, disagree with that? I'm trying to wean them off of me. Challenge each other. And I say, oh, so you all, you all agree with that answer. Everybody's quiet. No, no. Say something. So it's, it's trying to engage them in discussion, which is actually, it's a learning style of African Americans and Latinos anyway. Having discussed, we discussed, we discussed, and then we come to a conclusion. How many agree with number 11? Raise your hands if you agree with number 11. Now I'm doing Socratic seminar in math where the kids have to get into a small circle and share their answers but also and start challenging each other and coming up with mathematical, logical thinking for their answers. It's not just one and one is two. Sometimes I'll say, what if I say it's three? Prove to me it's two. How do you know it's two? And in the process of defending their answers, Either they're going to decide, oh, maybe it's not two, maybe it's something else, or it's going to strengthen their thinking. So it's, it's questioning techniques. Remember, and this ties over into your reading passages, why you choose the answers you choose. I had the kids read Jack and the Beanstalk, and I said the question we're going to discuss the next day is, is Jack a good guy or a bad guy? Because traditionally we have learned, oh, he's a good guy. This kid went and killed a giant, da 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 And so the kids just discuss it. And I was shocked by how deep the kids got into Jack and the Beanstalk. They were arguing, well, he's a bad guy. He, he killed this giant. The giant didn't come down to the uh, to the land. He went up to the giant's land. He killed the giant. He was stealing from him. Uh, some kids say, well, he's trying to help his mother to survive. They really got into a lot of discussion. And what ended up, we started writing a play. They wanted to put Jack and the giant's wife on trial for conspiracy to commit murder. 
And we started writing the play. Any test they throw at you is going to seem, quote unquote, easy if you are prepared. And the way you prepare is like coming to school, paying attention, asking questions, discussing things, doing your homework. And the way I'm to prepare you is by providing the environment in which you can do this. I think the dropout rate here is because the kids experience uh, bad experiences in school, the dropout rate in high school in this area, 70%. We need to change that. I did a study here at the school with two groups of students, one using problem-based learning and one using rote learning. And my students did better in all the academic areas, so they outdid the other fifth graders at that time. So I'm just convinced, just through experiences, reading, I'm just convinced that it's the best way to go. Neuroscience in the Classroom Making Connections was produced by Science Media Group at the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in association with the Mind, Brain, and Education Program at the Harvard GSE and the Brain and Creative Institute and the Rossier SOE at the University of Southern California. The Annenberg Learner Podcast joins the catalog of multimedia professional learning content to support educators teaching in more effective ways. Annenberg Learner is the education division of the Annenberg Foundation. Learner supports the foundation's mission to encourage the development of more effective ways to share ideas and knowledge. Go to learner.org or contact us at podcast at learner.org.